What can I expect from God? What can I expect from God? And we're working through that. And if you will, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be working through this for a while uh, because I think this uh, chapter, uh, in, in many ways, uh, gives us some information on that. I said last week, and it's, you know, it's maybe a, maybe a person's opinion, but James uh, Montgomery, uh, Montgomery Boyce said, Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Of course, I think that's kind of like Marty saying, this is my favorite verse this month, you know. <clears throat> You know, Marty said, oh, this is my favorite, and, and we've all got lots of favorite verses. We've got lots of favorite chapters, but there really is a, a sense in which Romans 8 is kind of a culmination of Paul's teaching or understanding about the Christian life. And so uh, I think, and, and I said to you again, uh, it, it's sort of because it begins, Romans 8, with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation, <clears throat> no separation. And I want to just draw your attention to that here, what this idea of what can we expect? Because if you look at Romans 8, and uh, we talked about its relationship. Again, I said, I don't think you really can understand Romans 8 if you have not read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Uh, there's too much uh, material in 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 that I think are necessary to understand the conclusions and the ramifications that Paul is calling uh, for in Romans 8. You just, you just can't. We call that context, you know, that, that you have to understand what's the contextual discussion or contextual matters that Paul's dealing with. So I, I just don't think you can understand that. So it, but, but it ends with this idea of no condemnation and then no, no separate. And I want you, you don't have to do this. Uh, I will come around and talk to you if you don't, but no. <laughs> um, in this book, in this chapter, I think that the no condemnation issue really goes from verses 1 to 17. We'll look at that because it has to do with the follower of Jesus' uh, situation or relationship with life in the Spirit as it relates to sin and those kind of matters. That, that, that idea of how can I live a life of no condemnation, life in the Spirit as it relates to, if you will, uh, life in the Spirit as it, as it relates to this common issue of sin. But at verse 18... I think this is where the no separation starts. And this is, uh, uh, in my judgment, because in Romans 8, uh, 8, 18, Paul begins a rather lengthy discussion about the troubles of this world, about the sorrows and difficulties. He says, I, I consider that the sufferings of this age are nowhere to even be compared to what we'll experience. But he does relate in there that the creation is groaning, that we're groaning. There's a lot of realism here, I would just say. It, it's, I, I think I get, got my job done. It's warm in here today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Some of y'all were freezing to death a few weeks ago. I get things done. That's right. Now I'm sweating like a... <laughs> Woo! I always knew it was comfortable because whenever I was teaching about my sport, I thought, I'm very comfortable. I knew people were just freezing to death. Uh, so, but, but Paul is a realist about what you can expect from God. And I just, we'll, we're going to get there someday. Romans 8, 18. And from 18 to 39, uh, what we can expect from God has to do with the realities of this world. This isn't no phony, baloney, good time, rock and roll stuff here. This is real life when it begins at 18. And I want to work our way through that. And so I think that's how I think it breaks out. What can we expect with respect to life in the spirit and this constant battle or constant matter of sin. And then what can we expect from God in real life? Not just some phony religious kind of activity that says, you know, you're going to be great. Life's going to be wonderful and you'll all be born with straight teeth. You know, uh, I, I, you know, you, you hear all kinds. Of, I, heard, I heard a guy say that they said that, you know, this year, God bless him. I, I don't know. Uh, I told my students the other day though, you know, sometimes we get the idea that God is our servant. And when we get in the realism, Heard a guy say one time that, you know, God is going to help you meet all your dreams. And I thought, I'm resigning from the college because I'm going to be a starting forward for the Houston Rockets this year. <laughs> Didn't know if y'all knew that. That's my dream, you know. I mean, God isn't in the business of just trying to let us have happen what we want. But God is involved in, the, in our lives in real tangible ways in the realities of life. This is no escapism. This is lean right into it 
and deal. So we'll deal with that from 18 to 39, but that's the no separation section in my judgment. So we'll go back now. Here we go. So we've been discussing this matter. What can you expect from God? And last week we started this, and it's on your outline there, uh, the means of freedom. And if you want to listen to that, I, I, there's some remarkable statements here that having come out of chapter 7, that Paul is saying there is now a way of freedom. Notice what he said. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I made that note again. The Christian life is not so much about Jesus being in you, but you being in Christ. That's the language of the New Testament. I think we've kind of turned this thing around. We keep asking people to ask Jesus into their life, and I'm just serious as a heart attack to say that that does not appear to be the language of the New Testament. The language of the New Testament is that you are in Christ as a new creation. You ought to think about that because our churchianity and some of our religious ideas have sort of taken over that we think the Christian life is Jesus coming into my life and in some sense serving me instead of if anyone is in Christ, their new creation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He chose us in the foundation of the world in Christ. So this is some way, this freedom of, of turning this boat around to say, get straight in your mind what the Christian life is. That God has invited us to be in Jesus's life. So it says there's no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life of Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And it is my opinion, and I think last week we showed exegetical basis for that, that the law of sin and death is Romans 7. That's the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. What is it? Remember now, this is a good test question from last week. What is it the law can't do? Huh? No. No. Huh? Nope. Nope. I failed. <laughs> what? My favorite student right here. C, wonder. It, yeah, that's right. Takes notes. Here it is. It can't deal with sin. Cannot. It cannot stop it. It cannot deal with it. So what the law can't do. Now look back at chapter 7 if you don't believe me. Look back at chapter 7. It's a little review here. Verse 5. For while we were, notice the tense there, in the flesh, that means in Adam, living life by human power, and human ability, and human intellect. There's only two possibilities. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. So while we were in Adam, the sinful passions were aroused by what? The law. The law arouses sin. It doesn't tamp it down. It doesn't stop it. It arouses it. And so Paul's saying what the law could not do, which it can't do with sin, you know, you cannot tamp it down. And then if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 56, again, a verse I've never hear, I only hear part of it because it would be probably maybe inappropriate at a funeral when it says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. This is why I'm saying Paul was going to be killed by the Jews. They, they didn't just dislike him. He had taken away from them the very thing they thought would save them. The law. If the law can't deal with sin, then a person is in condemnation. That, that's the whole connection. If the law can't deal with it, then a person's under condemnation. And so Romans 7 is a dirge. It's a, it's a sad story, if you will, of the inability, the inability of the law. I'll say one thing is 7, 1 to 7 deals with the function of the law. It reveals sin. And 7, 13 to the end deals with the failure of the law. And so Paul is saying what the law couldn't do. Couldn't do it. I said this last week, I'll say it again, and people, people ask me, it, it is impossible from the context, like in my, in my opinion, that Romans 7 is the Christian life. It's not possible. However, Christians get in it all the time. Because Christians try to deal with sin by the what? Law. Think about it. What's, what's law? Well, if you'd read three chapters in your Bible every day, you'll have victory over sin. You ever heard people say that? 
if you'd pray more than 15, you know, 15 minutes seems to be the spiritual benchmark right there. You know? Once you hit 16, whoo, you're gone, man. I mean, I mean, we have all kinds of formulas. We have all kinds of formulaic kinds of ways. I, I'm always, I always chuckle when parents are, you know, six steps to raising wonderful children. There's only six. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. You know? So this kind of law thing is when we get into this formulaic in Adam effort. Now, I, you know, the, the scriptures are hard to deal with because there's always a matter of balance here. It doesn't mean that we don't read scripture and don't pray and those kind of things. But we don't do them to earn power in order to deal with sin. The answer to the sin problem, according to Paul, is Christ Jesus by the Spirit. And so, uh, you know, this is not something new here. This is, this is not something new in the Jewish mind. He said, for what the law could not do, God did sending through the flesh, his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, the flesh is the arena where sin is condemned. Life in Adam, if you want to, that's what flesh means, sarcas. Life in Adam. Sin is condemned there. That's all it can do. Can't, can't free you from it, can't release you from it. It just condemns it. And he says, so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I want to I I work on that for a bit because it's interesting to me, uh, you know, I, I have opinions. I know that's a shock to you. <laughs> but one of the opinions I have, and we've talked about this in this class, so I, I, I don't want to go into great, great detail of it. But, but this idea of Paul saying the means of freedom here, and then and this second one here, is the means of living in the Spirit. What, what can you expect from God is you can expect the means of freedom, and that is through the means of living in the Spirit. It is um, it's surprising to me, um, in some sense. In a lot of what we call evangelical or free churches, you know, Free, when we say free churches, what we mean are people that kind of don't have a real liturgy. Well, they got a liturgy. They just hadn't written it down. You know? You're never going to go to church and not have an offering. Trust me, okay? That's part of the liturgy. Uh, but in what we call the free churches, uh, there doesn't, it just seems interesting to me uh, that we are great at celebrating Christmas. And we're great at celebrating Easter. And we don't even know when Pentecost is. Now, that's surprising to me. Partly because of several things. One is, it is the promise of the Old Testament that living in the Spirit would be the mark or the sign of the Messiah age. That would be the mark, the sign of the Messianic age. The Spirit would be released. And for you go to Joel 2 and see this. Pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old man will see visions. That's because old men can't sleep. You know? <laughs> I've often thought that. Your young men shall see dream dreams. Why? Because they can sleep. Old men have visions because we're always worried at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know. Can't go to sleep anymore. Oh, might as well get up. Uh, that's a terrible translation. <clears throat> terrible. But your old men shall dream, your young men shall dream, have dreams, and young men will have, old men will have visions. And my apart, my spirit on the handmaiden, every, the spirit. I mean, this is the promise of the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'm going to give you of my spirit. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, I'm going to have a new agreement. I'm going to write the law in your heart. I'm going to write the law in your heart. Acts 1, 4 to 5, Jesus says, you know, he's risen from the dead. I would think the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are this, sick them. <laughs> right? I just conquered death, okay? Go get them. What does he say? Wait until you receive the promise that the Father made. Where'd the Father make that promise? Joel 2, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. There's a promise coming. There's a promise coming. It's the presence, promise of the Spirit. I find it fascinating. And we'll, you know, we always have a party in here. We have cake. Beth and Bill are so kind to help. We have a party on Pentecost every year. I'm personally convinced it's the greatest, the most important thing in the life of the church. I'll tell you why. <clears throat> when Jesus said, wait, 
He's suggesting that it's not over yet. That the goal of all of God's activity, the goal of the incarnation, the goal of the crucifixion, the goal of the resurrection is what? The bestowing of the Spirit. It's not over. We sort of stop at Easter. I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's wonderful to understand that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's resurrected. He's alive. But he's alive for a reason. That the Spirit of God might be available now to all those who call upon the name of the Lord. And for some reason in free churches, Pentecost just runs right past us. And in my job, again, it's my opinion. You don't, you don't have to agree with that. Thoughts and opinions as a teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church. It's elders or leadership. We're, 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 we're missing the goal. This is everything Jesus did, lived, and died for and rose to, to have this happen. It's fascinating to me, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is given. You may know this if you've been here on Pentecost before. The day of Pentecost was the day that the Jews celebrated the incoming of the, of, the, of the harvest. And they also celebrated that that was the day that God, 50 days after Passover, that's the day God gave the Jews the law. On that day, the Father gave His children the Spirit. You want the law? You can keep the law, I guess. But on Pentecost, the Jews understood that's the day we celebrate in the giving and the receiving of the law. The New Testament church is, is characterized by, if you will, or understood as, that on that day, we receive the presence of the Holy Spirit to make us Jesus' people. So living in the Spirit, this is what it says, that we would live in the Spirit, if you will, for this matter. Now, what happens when we live in the Spirit? Here it is. Here we go. Fulfillment. Notice what he says. For, uh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but in or by the Spirit. This is interesting here. I want, I want to look at this here for a minute. When he says that, <clears throat> so that, in other words, there's no condemnation for us who are Christ, so that we might, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who do not walk according to the flesh. I, I'm fascinated by this as I looked at it <clears throat> in this respect, that the fulfillment of living, or the life in the Spirit is fulfillment of the law. How? By the way we walk. By the way we walk. Notice here what it says, the, the requirement. I, I wrote my notes here. It's a singular form there, isn't it? That the requirement, does yours have requirement or requirements? You have requirements? Munt? Oh, here we go. This is going to get crazy. Munt? Munts? Oh, this is going to get weird. Okay. Yeah. You have a New American Standard, don't you? See, you're my favorite student. He, he has the real Bible. He takes notes. Man. Let's just me and you talk here this morning, okay? So, Eric, no, uh, New American Standard, and it translates as accurate, I believe. It's requirement. Singular. New American Standard is what we would consider to be the most literal translation accurate of that. Now, it, it could be that this is a collective idea. Like the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. There's more than, you know, several. It could be collective here that, the, that, that if we walk in the Spirit, that, that, we, that we fulfill the requirement and, you know, all that. However, I, I, I got to thinking about this. Maybe what Paul is saying here, when we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the requirement of the law because really in the New Testament we find out there is one requirement of the law. Love. If you take the Ten Commandments apart, the first four are how I love God. And the next six are how I love others. And, and, and Paul is pretty clear. Look, look here, if you will, in Galatians, just for a second. Often when people study the book of Romans, they will study the book of Galatians because they have so many uh, kind of correlations together. But if you go to Galatians chapter 5... Go to Galatians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom 
into an opportunity of the flesh. Where is that word? I see back that's life back in Adam. But through the law, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, Jerry. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's right. They all hang, or they all all depend on that. That, that this idea of, if you will, and th- and there are other passages you can look at this in Romans thirteen eight. You can look at Romans thirteen eight, and Jesus in Mark four, where Jerry's referring to the the idea of of uh, you know what's the greatest commandment that you love God. That, that this idea that the just requirement of the law and those in the spirit is fulfilled as we live out a life of love. Now, I want, I want, to, I want to take a little time on this because I think about this. I know uh, I have met people. I've been one of the peoples. Let me start with me. I've been one of those peoples that when I thought that I was really living spiritual, I had a big, long list that I was keeping. And if you didn't keep the same list I did, you weren't as spiritual as I was. Anybody done that ever before besides me? Yeah. That this idea of somehow some people, it seems like, when they talk about living in the spirit or living their life, they seem to get mean. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how that happens. But they get mean and censorious and and arrogant in some sense. And I wonder if it is because they've tried to live out the requirements of the law. That they've got these big long lists about what they do and don't do. They've got these lists of requirements. They think, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. Instead of saying, you know what? The requirement of the law is that whatever I do, however I live, whichever way I operate, it's always done out of love. That that's the requirement that has to be met. It just seems to me in my own life, I've reflected on this, that at one point, spiritual maturity and spiritual growth for me made me mean. I know that's hard to believe, but you know, yeah. <laughs> made me mean because I thought everybody else was so much lower than me. I thought nobody else was trying as hard as I was. I thought nobody else was giving it the effort that I was, you know? I thought, come on, man, get with this. And then I began to realize that can't be it because it made me censorious and judgmental instead of saying, how can I live out a life of love? And so Paul says here, if we walk in the Spirit... Now, this word idea here is, is, is this idea of, of, of walking or living. And so I want to suggest here that when we walk and live in the Spirit, one of the ways that we know that we're walking, because this is, you know, people ask me sometimes, what does it mean to live in the Spirit? And I say, it, it, it's complicated. You can't just nail it down. It's not, again, four steps or three principles or nine, nine ideas. But one of the ways that we know we're walking in the Spirit is that we're living out the requirement of the law, which means we are fulfilling love to God and our neighbor. Now, and I don't think this, you know, I've said this before. I, I, don't, I think sometimes we have to be careful to define love. I see a lot of what I call, you know, sloppy agape, you know. <laughs> you know, it's just sloppy. It's, it's, it's mindless. It's... It's childish. Agape love, really, I don't usually even use the word anymore. Love, I use the term holy love. Holy love. Some people seem, it seems to me to think that love is just permission. Let people do what they want to do. Let them go. We generally call that enabling people, right? Right? That the idea of love is this holy love. Let me, give you the, give me the, let me give you the feature of holy love. Holy love makes distinctions. It will not stand for what is bad for you. It won't do it. It won't just say, well, you know, I love you. God bless you. Destroy your life. It makes distinctions between what is good and what is bad. And sometimes it is looks different than what we tend to think of just this kind of sloppy, sentimental, hallmark stuff. But to say, I love you, I care about you to the extent that I may tell you the truth. 
Or I love you to the extent that I'll go the extra mile with you. Or, or I love you to the extent that I'm willing to sit there with you in your grief. And I don't, I don't have an answer. I, I don't know what to tell you. But I'll sit there with you in your grief. This idea of the fulfillment of the law. That, 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 we, that when we walk in the Spirit, that the way that we know that is what I'm doing and how I'm living is an expression of holy love. And it may mean I've got to confront something or say something or, you know, lay some truth on somebody. Or it may mean that I uh, uh, sit with someone and wait with someone and go the extra mile. C.S. Lewis and some others have have always called it this this idea of other-centered other-centered. I, I care about you. I'm, I'm concerned about you. And, and that's the challenge, or that's the, 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 the matter here that Paul says, that the law can't do it. But the Spirit of God living with us, the Spirit of Christ, is able to enable us to fulfill that requirement of the law to love others and to love God. Now, what does it mean that way? Let me, let me just give you a possibility here. When I got out of high school, um, I didn't want to go to college. I'd had enough school. So I got a job working for a civil engineer. They built highways in Kentucky. And I discovered that civil engineers are no more civil than chemical engineers. But <laughs> that's another story. <clears throat> but, I, but we worked on Interstate 64 in, uh, in Kentucky. And uh, we were uh, uh, making this highway, uh, interstate highway. And I've told Becky this so she knows this. And, you know, I was 18 years old and, and all, and I wrote my girlfriend's name in the subgrade. So her name is underneath the freeway in perpetuity, you know. So what a romantic thing to do. Huh? Yeah, Becky knows about this. She went and jackhammered it up. No. <laughs> One night. But, but we're building this freeway. And, you know, uh, it's technical work, and I'm the youngest guy on the crew, and uh, we're, we're, uh, we're having to what we do call run elevations. Uh, because, you know, if you don't run the right elevation and you do something, you know, you get down the highway and there's a six-inch speed bump like at Walmart in the middle of the freeway. You know, you don't want that. Uh, and so the way you do that is as you are working down the road and you're running what we call levels, I checked with my good buddy Brian Kuhn this morning as a civil engineer. I said, Brian, make sure I got this right because it's been a few years. Um, and I do. We're running levels and we're running off and we're trying to make sure that the, that, the, that the highway is running according to the right level. Is it going up or down like that? And the right grade where it's sloping, where the water will run off correctly. And it's a lot of technical stuff. And we had a great crew chief. His name was Phil Helfenberger. And Phil would you know, lay out all these big plans. And, you know, it had all the information and, and uh, topographic uh, uh, maps. And, and, all, and we'd just sit around and drink coffee while I was doing that, uh, you know, because we didn't know what it was doing. And then Phil would say to me, Cliff, go out there and go to the benchmark. I said, where is it? And he'd say, it's over this way. This is a benchmark. These are all over the country, all over the world, actually. And these are set in stone or concrete. And there's an elevation here that, oh, that you check into. That when you go into that elevation, that looks like to me that elevation is 134 feet. Right here. See, it's the Geodetic Survey Benchmark, U.S. Uh, coast. Um, uh, we would go into those benchmarks and say, okay, our calculations say that because we're at this certain level on the highway, we should be at this foot level, and we go in, check it. If we did, we could go on. If not, we had to stop. We had to say, okay, we got to go back, refigure. That's where they're taking the maps out. We got to refigure the calculations because we're off by a tenth. Of course, we used to always say, close enough for government work, let's keep going. <laughs> we did. That was it. That was it. Close enough for government work, let's go. Uh, the benchmark. What I'm trying to say is this. This is the place we went to find out, are we at the right elevation? The benchmark for walking in the Spirit is holy love. That's the benchmark. 
You now want to know we're walking in the Spirit? Go to the benchmark. What, what do you check? Is what I'm doing, is the way I'm acting, is the way I'm living, is it an expression, not of human perfection, not of, not of human uh, holiness, but holy love? You know what? I have to regularly check that benchmark about every day. I remember Phil one time uh, sent me out to one. And I don't know if you know, I was talking to Brian a little bit this morning. In the United States still, there are some benchmarks on the eastern coast over there that were set years ago by George Washington. Yeah, they're still reliable. You can still go to Google Earth or they can do those uh, Google Earth with the satellites and it's still the right elevation. See, here's, here's the life. So that the just requirements of the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. How do you know that? Check into the benchmark. Is what I'm doing, is what I'm thinking, is the way I'm acting, the way I'm responding, is it holy love? Now again, don't don't think this is always sloppy. Don't think this isn't that you could tell a person or tell yourself or tell others. Hey, this is not appropriate. This, this holy love makes distinctions, but not in an arrogant, hostile, kind of up, one-upmanship on others, but the willingness, if you will, to check in. Who do not walk according to the flesh, that's Adam, human perspective, but who walk according to the Spirit. Now, here's an application. What if this week you allowed the Holy Spirit to fulfill the requirement of the law in your life? Love. What specific way is there for you to love God or love your neighbor this week? You want to walk in the Spirit? <clears throat> How can you specifically? I would even say maybe you might even think of a person's name right now. Is there a person that you have a way of perhaps expressing God's holy love toward? Or a situation that you could demonstrate God's holy love. Uh, or or uh, that you would love your neighbor to say, how would I do that? How, how, how can I live that out? To me, that's the benchmark. That's the benchmark. Walking in the Spirit. Now, I just want to let you sit there for a second. Think about that. I, sometimes I think I run through this application too fast. So just, just think for a second. How could you do that? Quit thinking about performance. Quit thinking about perfection. Quit thinking about doing things where people are impressed. Think about the benchmark. Holy love. That's the requirement of the law. It can't be done by gritting your teeth. It can't be done by the law can't be done by oughts and shoulds. can only be done by opening our lives to the presence of the Spirit. Do this through me. Do this in me. Do this with me. Kind of weird being quiet in church, isn't it? I told you my definition of teaching is when you hear another voice. You hearing that? Okay, what can we expect? Second, <clears throat> I just use this word here. <clears throat> this idea of walking in the spirit is not only, uh, if you will, this fulfillment, but it's also something that's available. Look at verse 5, <clears throat> and I just, it's just fascinating to me, you know, and uh, let's look here for a second while you're doing that. Look at verse uh, 5 here. There's a word, nobody ask anything here. Uh, there's a word for those who are according to the flesh. Now remember, when you see this word flesh, remember it's always associated with life in Adam. Romans 5, Romans 6. 
Life in the flesh is life in Adam, using everything Adam's got, intellect, using everything Adam's got, power and energy and effort, and thinking, I can leverage this with human power. They set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for the mind set. I want you to notice how many times this word set shows up. Set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I want to, I want to look at this here for a second because Paul seems to be saying something here that, that there's a life that's available. What can you expect from God? There's a life that's available. And it comes from where have you set your mind? See the word set there? It shows up in verse 5. It shows up twice in 6. It shows up in 7. Set, set, set. Now, that word there, that idea means to focus. I noticed, I thought about this. This is a picture of not focusing. <clears throat> that is, well, it is, a, it is a picture of focusing, but that would be focusing on the flesh, <laughs> Right? He's not noticing. Look, there's a lot of research here about the idea of setting our minds. You know, you you might be watching the Winter Olympics like like I am some, but of course, my view is all of these sports were designed by a bunch of guys around a campfire that got drunk. (laughs) Hey, let's get on a little sled. Go 60 miles an hour down on our back, down an ice thing. Yeah! Telling you, that's how it happened. Or let's get on some skis and jump real high in the air and get over the top of our skis like this. That's just my thought. <clears throat> but we're impressed. We're impressed, I think, with people who set their minds on training at a level that can compete on an international level. We're, 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 we're impressed with that. And, you, and I, when I was writing, I said, we're impressed by Olympic athletes and the dedication and time for years in the Olympic Games. But wait a minute. I got kids, a job, and a mortgage. You know, the, the, this idea of, you know, not many people can do that. But how do we set our mind and how do we focus our attention? So some new research I read by Matt Killingsworth who said that their research indicates that people's minds wander 47% of the day, wandering. They interviewed 15,000 individuals all across the world, 80 different countries, and they said the single one issue that they discovered is that people are incredibly unhappy because they can't focus on life. They can't get their mind. There's a direct correlation between your mind wandering and happiness. Paul said this. He said, set your mind. Don't let it wander. Don't let it go around. Set it. And where you set it is what you'll get it. Where you set it is where you'll get You set it on the flesh, you'll get the flesh. You set it on the spirit, you get the spirit. The fact is that we have our minds that are wandered. I've recommended a book, and I still recommend it. It's called The Wired Soul. I'm, I'm, I'm finishing it. It's called The Wired Soul soul and it is addressing from a technological standpoint and brain research of how technology, phones, iPads, all that stuff is literally driving us to distraction. Now this is research stuff. This isn't just a bunch of, you know, Christians right. This idea is called the wired soul. I've been asking myself and I've told you guys before. I've wondered recently in the last 5 or 6 years why I have so much trouble concentrating in prayer. That person addresses that directly in the book of how that these devices. I'm telling you, I've got to where now when I hear a ding, I do that. I'm like Pavlov's dog, you know. <laughs> right? Do you? Do you jump a little bit? You know? And I don't need to be jumpy. I'm already jumpy. You know? Uh, but, but, but we have that stuff. We, you know? I do this. Don't you? You know, I, I, in my prayer time, I got to either turn it off or do something with it because as soon as it Things, I think there's somebody more important to talk to than the God of the universe. Think about that for a second. I suddenly, oh, I got to take that call. You know, that's from, who knows? 
But, but this notion or this idea of setting our minds, this understanding, uh, it made me think, which can be dangerous. It made me think of a couple of quotes or a couple of thoughts. Carl Jung, or Jung, from East Texas, said this. I know, it's from Texas. Carl Jung, or Jung, that's what we call him. He said this. And it's been attributed to a theologian, but he said this. Hurry is not from the devil. Hurry is the devil. Hurry is not just from the devil. Hurry is the devil. John Ortberg was uh, referring one time that what did he learn from Dallas Willard? Some of y'all know him or have heard of him, Dallas Willard. What, what, did he, what did he learn in terms of spiritual life and spiritual growth? And, and, and Ortberg said he taught me many things, but he said the most important thing that he taught me was ruthlessly remove hurry from your life ruthlessly ruthlessly remove hurry from your life that that didn't help me a lot <laughs> but then Ortberg went on and said this hurry is not the physical thing it's inward here's what in, in my life and, and Ortberg said the same thing so I'm 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 encouraged Hurry is when I get into a situation and I think it all depends on me. That, that, that's hurry. You get in a situation and you got to fix it or you gotta, you got to be the answer. Or, or, or hurry is when I go through life and think, God's not going to help me. I got to get this done. Hurry, hurry is, is when I can't trust God in his timing. I'm worried about it. I'm, I'm fretting about it. I'm thinking, okay, look, I've given it to you, God. I've, I think I've done everything I'm supposed to do here. I'm just going to wait. Hurry is when you can't wait on God's timing. You see, our minds aren't set on the spirit. They're set on us. They're set on hurry. They're set on all kinds of things. And Paul just keeps saying this again. Set your mind on the spirit. Yeah, Mary Jane. She's asking for the, for the record. Is that the same thing as busyness? I think so from the standpoint, but I think it's more internal. Busyness, I think sometimes is my uh, confession here is good for the soul, terrible for the reputation. Um, I think busyness is sometimes in my life an attempt to run from God. Say it again. I, I think busyness has been in my life at times. I'm running from him. You know, I'm thinking, oh, if I, if I spend too much time here, he might say something. <laughs> you know? Now, I know some of that's part of my extroversion. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to be quiet for very long. But busyness can be a... a uh, uh, Eugene Peterson said it's called the laziness of busyness. You know, he's wrote, he wrote... That translation of the Bible, he's called it the laziness of it, that I just keep myself preoccupied, 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 and I'm kind of running from God. Yeah. Devil. Yeah, keep busy, keep busy. Yeah, idleness is, yeah, yeah. It makes me think of this quote, and you may know this from, uh, from, um, from C.S. Lewis when he says this It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. Too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. Fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. It's not that our desires are too strong. They're too weak. And we settle for things less than what God would offer us. 
So setting our minds, setting our minds on the Spirit. What does that mean? What does that mean? I'm going I'm to work with you on that here in a second. But, but it's setting our minds might mean that we, at our job, we seek to set our mind on the Spirit so that we'll conduct ourselves in a way that will honor God. Setting our minds in our free time is we might be alert to how does my mind move when it's let go and free. A guy asked me this years ago, what does your mind gravitate to when you have free time? Hmm. Interesting thought. What does it move toward? What do I think about? I, this may not be a great example. I mean, some of y'all may, but Steve Jobs <clears throat> made this statement. He said, people think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred of other good ideas that are there. You have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things I have done. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things. Set your mind. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about some legalistic kind of way or in some kind of thing that you, I'm just adding something to your life. Oh boy, I went to Sunday school. Dan Cliff just added a bunch of junk on us. I know you got a job. I know you got a family. I know you got kids. I know you got responsibilities. We all got them. But our minds being set on the things of the Spirit. Paul seems to say when we do that, we live life in the Spirit. It might be different for any of us. It, it might have, have different manifestations, if you will, in that. But look at it here. You set your mind on the thing of the Spirit. I, I wrote on the back of your, uh, I think it's here. <clears throat> look on the back of your outline there. What if this week you chose one thing of the following, something to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? What if you had a scripture, <clears throat> you, don't, you don't think of it all day. I mean, you know, you got to do work. But what if you started tomorrow with a scripture, just out of your Bible reading, whatever, and just say, I'm just going to kind of carry that scripture with me today. Just going to kind of meditate on think about it. You know, whatever it is. It might be a devotional matter. It might be your own Bible reading. You know, <clears throat> I was reading through Luke the other day and just a phrase. I just kind of went through the day when I had time. Or, or have a couple of times of prayer during the day. I used to set my watch. It had a little alarm on it. And I would set my watch just to kind of keep me alert uh, to the fact of, of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, to pray. Um, I have a friend. Uh, I'll, I'll protect him. Uh, decided that what they would do is that this, this is a bunch of guys. So, I, you know, you never know what guys are going to do. What if, <clears throat> what if every time you went to the bathroom next this week... <laughs> What if every time you went to the bathroom, when you came out of the bathroom, you prayed a little prayer to God to say, guide me and direct me for the rest of the day? Something that triggers your mind to set, to reset, to set, to reset. Every time you leave the bathroom at work to say a little prayer like, Lord, help guide me today and help me be sensitive to your leading. Or, or every time you hang up the phone at work, every time you hang up the phone at work, you know, you just ask God to remind you, to remind you, say, now, Lord, uh, help me to talk to you throughout the rest of the day. Every time you hang the phone or turn your phone off, you know, you know, I have on my, I have on my calendar in the morning, uh, weird to me, but every morning it says to me, sink to the real cloud. <laughs> sink to the real cloud. So when I'm having my devotions, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm sinking to the real cloud where all the knowledge is. Something. Or, or why do you on the back? Or watch TV, things on TV or video that are spirit honoring. In other words, say, this day, whatever I watch on video or on the television is going to be God honoring. If it isn't, changing the channel. Or during the day, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. These are things, again, that help us to set our minds. Because you're going to hang the phone up and say, Lord Jesus, I want to keep talking to you this day that you've got to. You've got to go back to work. You know, you've got to draw a plan up or do something. This isn't this that you just have to be like sitting around all the time praying. But there have to be ways that we learn to set our mind on the things. That are, does that make sense? To set our minds. The reason I said it the way I did on the outline was it's available. 
It's available. Notice there what it says. It's available. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. Your mind and my mind is not going to get set accidentally. Your mind and my mind, we've got to find ways in our culture, in our world, to set our minds. Or I would say, in my particular case, is to keep resetting. That's what I got to do. You know, I'm pretty good at the house and the kitchen <laughs> in the morning. I don't have too many problems when I'm combing my hair in front of the lavatory. But when I get in that car <laughs> and when I got to get to work and deal with the fallen creatures that I'm around <laughs> <laughs> who don't understand me, that's where it is, isn't it? Reset. Reset. So what are you going to do? Is it going to be when the phone rings? When you walk out of the bathroom? Whenever you uh, get in the car? Whenever you drive out the drive? I don't know. But some way for us, Paul says here, for the mindset on the flesh is life and peace. That's what it is. Life and peace. And the, light, and the mindset on the flesh is death. So how are we going to do it? That'll be up to you and up to me to figure that out as we walk through this. What can you expect from God? Freedom and a way to fulfill life to the fullest. That's what you can expect. How's that happen? Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to keep talking about this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I feel like an idiot sometimes, Lord, talking about this incredible truth of your Holy Spirit. And man, if you don't, if you don't make this real in people's hearts, Lord Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, not going to be much out of this. I confess to you, these people, that only your Spirit is able to quicken us and aliven us to this kind of life. So we humble ourselves before you. We offer our lives to you. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.